0: Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Women's Day Podcast. This week, we heard from the mother of a woman who was killed by her estranged husband. Diana Parks spoke to us movingly about what her daughter Joanna was like and the impact her death has had on her family, particularly her two young children. We were joined live in the studio by the highest female football official on the island. We also discussed the rights and wrongs of compliments. But first, on Friday's programme, we talked about the role of journalism here in the Isle of Man in 2015. Now, the purpose of journalism is not defined by technology, nor by journalists or the techniques they employ. Rather, the principles and purpose of journalism are defined by something more basic – the function news plays in the lives of people. Now those are the thoughts of Bill Kovac and Tom Rosenthal, writing in The Elements of Journalism, a book all about the purpose and the problems of journalism nowadays, an industry which is constantly evolving and in time when we no longer really need to wait to hear the latest news because those major events are live streamed to our mobile phones. And to talk about this in detail this afternoon we're joined by, as I say, three experienced journalists from across the island's media. Richard Butt is editor of Isle of Man newspapers, Marion Kenny is news editor here at Manx Radio, and Paul Moulton, uh, the man behind MTTV. Nice weather. You've got uh, a couple of uh, emails in already saying, uh, nice to hear a blast from the past.
2: What, nice and smashy sort of thing, you mean? I I didn't like to say
1: that. I didn't like to say that. Um, Richard Butt, your first job was delivering newspapers, so did you always want to be a journalist?
0: Yeah, I delivered newspapers in Olkin for Moyes News Agents in the late 70s and early 80s um, around Summerhill and the park in Onken, Alberta Drive so I I read them as I went through, went around Um, and then um, I went to university and I studied politics at university couldn't do journalism degrees in those days, they didn't exist and then I came back to the Isle of Man and I got work experience at the Isle of Man Courier Group as it was called then, back in eighty nine. And they liked me so much, as it were. They offered me a job, but I had to do the training course first in the UK. So I went back to Preston to do a postgraduate course there in newspaper journalism. So that's how I got into the role I'm in now. And I I stayed in the the Isle of Man until I got qualified as a a senior, went over to live in Manchester, did work there for 14 or 15 years and returned as editor seven years ago nearly.
1: Marion Kenny, you've worked in broadcast journalism both here and in the UK since your early 20s how have you seen the profession change in that time oh,
3: massively and i had a something like a 6 year break um before Um, coming here doing other things um, that weren't uh, radio broadcasting and the difference that had happened in that time was absolutely phenomenal basically um, the world had gone digital that was a huge change for me because when uh, I had previously been in broadcasting we were splicing bits of quarter inch tape with a razor blade and sticking the edit together with a piece of splicing tape and all of a sudden you know everything was on screen so and also the machinery that we used to, to gather the To gather the material had changed. And, and of course, the Internet. That's the other huge thing I've noticed in my career, (laughs) starting off with phones that were ringing off the hook, you know, phones were absolutely boiling and the sackfuls of mail every day you don't get you know the newsroom's relatively quiet phone wise because everybody uses the internet and we find out about news in different ways.
1: Well Paul Moulton your role is really all about modern technology and instant access. How would you say the skills of of more traditional journalism are still applicable to what you do?
2: Well for me probably not because I am in the totally the front end of it yeah, the latest media i mean like last night at the by-elections i've had my periscope going um so we did live video from the counts and i'm filming it on my own camera at the same time this is changing everything i mean i I, i'm one of these people i'm not a writer at all i'm i'm rubbish at that so I, i film i cut i edit and it's up it's fast it's furious and that's the way i come about this thing and you know it's the way that everyone is moving Richard does videos well on his mm-hmm. site. You doing some stuff as well, aren't you, Marion? As well, so it's all. Everything's moving fast. I would say very, very fast now.
1: Okay. Well, I said that the the topic of this uh, discussion is what is the role of journalism in 2015. So, Paul, can you answer that for me? Uh, give me your thoughts on that first of all.
2: Well, everyone's going to be a journalist. Everyone is, is that sort of thing now. People come off planes that are burning, and the first thing they do is turn around and take videos and, and pictures of everyone else. Off. They don't think, uh, when there's c- crashes, the police are, are always saying now, people aren't ringing for the emergency services, they're taking selfies or, or taking pictures. And I I think we're at the end of the era where we, as journalists, control the media. I mean, you can see it happening all the time. The police, using their Facebook pages, go direct now to everybody with anything that's happening, any accidents. Uh, they don't necessarily mm-hmm. come through us at all. In fact, we're playing second fiddle. We, mm-hmm. Yeah, Richard?
0: That <laughs> often happens, yeah, we do. We, You know, the, the police are very proactive in the Isle of Man, particularly in fact um, on Twitter and on Facebook bringing things to people directly and then we, we, we see that we get press release and pay perhaps from them as well and we, we do catch up for a little bit we hopefully add more to it and, and get more sources and find more out and, and ho- you know be reluctant to print or, or, or put anything up that we haven't actually verified from a, another source as well and maybe there's a credibility issue that hopefully the journalists can help to bridge um, I'm not saying we, we always get it right because we don't always get it right. Um, but, you know, that's one of the things that I think we have to do. But ultimately we have to tell the story and people need to know what the story is. To, it affects their lives. And that's what our role is to do, is to really give them information that hopefully live, makes them help, helps them to live a better life, or a more informed life.
3: Going back to the question you said, what is the role? Paul's absolutely right. We've got lots of people out there mm. feeding us raw material and people burning planes and people... Um, taking photos, videos, um, sending in quotes and copying um, or finding references out there on the internet and on other sites, sending it all in. So, in a sense, we've got news gathering not covered. Of course we haven't, but we've got a lot of other people doing that. I would say that that the role of a news service, and, Paul, you you have a video news clip delivery service, but if you are a newspaper or a radio station that is purporting to offer... Um, an editorial news service. I think our job is, is actually to give those pictures and those stories the context and mm. to offer some commentary on them and to in some case um, analyse them and discuss them more.
2: I think the, the big difference I've got is I can shoot it and put it up because I don't have a linear distribution. You guys have both got to fill bulletins, you've got to fill newspapers. <laughs> and I always think poor Richard must have the worst job in the world these mm. days. What does he hold back to put in the Mm. You know, the old fashioned mm. press, and what's he put online? Well, um,
0: our, our, our premise really is if it's out there anyway, if Marion's covering it or Paul's covering it or it's somewhere else, it goes on the website as, as soon as possible, and then it go, anything we keep it for the newspapers should be an exclusive story or added on to significantly to make it. Uh, worth buying the newspaper.
3: But these are our narrow professional values, aren't they? That We're competing against each other. I mean, I think people don't look at it in the way we do. We got that story first or you got one before us. The fact is, you hear something on the radio and then you read it in the paper or vice versa or you read something in the paper and then there's an interview about the same topic on mandate and there's nothing wrong with that from the listener or the reader's point of view. That's
1: an interesting point, isn't it? Because there is a perceived rivalry between all the media organisations in the Isle of Man. I mean, first of all, Is that true, and how much does it drive you if it is?
3: It's just our own sort of professional one-upmanship, I think. I don't know if it matters much to anyone else.
0: It probably doesn't a lot, but it, it 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 does give you professional pride if you've got something that nobody else has got, and that does drive journalists. They do want to be first in the news. They do want to break the news.
1: I'm interested in something that you said earlier, Richard, in so far as you are reluctant to put out information that hasn't been verified, because... I'm thinking about the, the pressure there is to get a story out nowadays and whether it leads to less fact-checking than you would
0: have done historically. That's a good question. Um, I worked in Manchester for a while uh, for Channel MTV, which is no longer, no longer there. It was part of the Manchester Even News Group, and I was out filming... And I got a phone call to say, oh, there's there's bones been found on on the moors." Uh, Sky's running this thing. Bones being found, uh, you know, where the moors murders were, and we turned around in the in the jeep. We went up there, and it turned out to be a sheep. Mm. And uh, Sky News, <laughs> they, had <weren't> run... bones, <laughs> they yeah. were bones. They weren't human remains. Yeah, everything's as, as... got to be. changed. And and, and and Sky had run that story, and we we, you know, we were. To, you know, crestfallen in a way that what we were doing you know, there's a massive story going to happen and, and, and there are examples of that I'm sure all the time where things haven't been verified and pushed out there and actually does do a disservice to the Well It, it the makes
3: people. the news organisation pushing it out less credible. Well, I mean there was one the other day which is a story we broke so I will mention it, the um, fact that the Attorney General Stephen... Uh, Suspended Attorney General Stephen Harding is actually going to court. He's taking his employer, in effect. It's a Crown appointment. He's taking the Lieutenant Governor to court. We came across that, and, you know, it wasn't as a result of our own great... um, A virtue in finding it one of my colleagues is friends with somebody that um mr harding was facebook friends with and he i think he may have meant to send a personal message i don't know but he posted the fact on this person of this other person's timeline and which was then viewed by my colleague so but even though it it appeared to be mr harding posting his um decision to go to court that wasn't enough i mean Hmm. somebody else could theoretically be masquerading as him so it was a call to the cabinet office it was a call to government house it was a call to the courts don't get anywhere you get as close to the story as you can picked up the phone rang Mr Harding and he said yes that's me.
2: I think uh, one of the, the pressures we're under these days is uh, let's say someone's died or something may just happen the police won't release names but media lo- I mean you know social media goes with names mm-hmm. so now we get more and more this thing of Social media have announced its or named locally is another way of doing it, which mm-hmm. means hasn't been verified, hasn't been checked off. But the media is almost obliged now to run with it because everyone else is going with the name.
1: Does that yeah. mean then that the age of the embargo is, is truly over?
2: Well, we still get embargoes on all sorts of weird yeah. things from government. Yeah. I mean, we have a picky thing about the, the unemployment lists every week. Yeah. Um, embargo to nine a.m. and every, every week month. when we get them, I always yeah. go, "Why? Yeah. No one seems yeah. to be able to." Answer I, that I one. think
3: some of some of those <laughs> types of um, announcements are so that. Members of Tim or members—I don't know—members <laughs> of government need to see them
2: 9 a.m. on a Friday. But I,
3: I, I haven't got a problem with embargoes for sound operational reasons. You know, mm-hmm. don't tell your listeners that the police are going to do dawn raids on 14 addresses in Douglas today. Mm-hmm. Of course not. But we'll give you the full story when it's done. Of course, we'll honour that. But there are embargoes that are clearly designed um, for. The, sometimes other medias benefit so we can sometimes see if something appears to be um, embargoed such that it will hit the newspaper first. Okay, that's fine but it, it's not a strong operational embargo reason and of course companies do it for their own commercial reasons as well.
1: So if you're dealing with a story, it is embargoed but you have a hunch that another media organisation is going to publish the details. What do you do, Marion? Do you take the moral high ground stick to the rules or give in to your competitive I, I
3: think if there is you know, a compelling operational reason not to use it. We wouldn't. I mean, there was the the Mount Murray jobs that there was an embargo on <laughs> I knew that.
1: You're going to
2: mention that one. No, but no, there was. On that one. No, you
3: didn't see it. <laughs> I didn't see the
2: embargo sign. <laughs> to be fair, there was it an wasn't embargo, clear.
3: and we were yeah. you know champing at the bit to use the story. But um, it was made clear to me, and and I took this at face value that the people whose jobs were mm. about to go were. Being told at that time, and it wasn't really fair for them to hear it first on Manx radio. You might do that in a big city station, but we're part of the community, so we chose not to do that.
0: Generally, I mean, it's gentlemen's agreement—an embargo—and I would stick to it unless—and sometimes I question it and say, "Well, why is this embargo at this time?" But you know, there are are often good reasons for them. They're often not some—often there can be reasons, not not good reasons. But you know, I, I will basically stick with them.
4: Do we ask school children to specialise too early? That's what we're asking today in the wake of comments published by the new president of the British Science Association, Dame Athena Donald. She says teaching maths and science to all up to 18 would produce a wiser population. And she believes the problem starts young, with too few teachers able to teach primary school science or trained as subject specialists at secondary level. So she argues forcing pupils to make subject choices from the age of, 14 effectively divides the nation and i'm quoting here into sheep and goats science people and arts people so what do you think do we ask school children to specialize too early
5: joe Mm, interesting one isn't it i think it depends on the child in actual fact because different kids um have different maturity levels to be able to make decisions, whether it's to do with specialising in subjects or anything else to that matter. Um, So, you know, when is the right age to make these decisions? I've got a 14-year-old, as you know, Kate, and um, she's just had to make her GCSE options. And I'm sure that she took up photography because most of her mates were doing so. Um, She's, however, loving her first week back at school and enjoying it too. I just wonder whether they do make those right decisions at that age or whether it is because maybe it's their friends are doing it, or even their boyfriend is doing it, or their girlfriend. Um, Kate, I think you've got a little story about that to do with art.
4: Possibly? Absolutely not. Uh, yeah, Thank yeah. you, Jay. Rob, with your <laughs> school
5: teacher hat
4: on, do you think we? Do you think fourteen is too young to be making decisions that can really shape the path you continue down as a youngster? I think
6: there's a fine balance here. I think children really, we need to encourage them to keep their options as open as possible for as long as possible but on the other hand we need to nurture specific talents that children um, have whether it's dance whether it's music, whether it's art, whatever and so to nurture those specific talents you do need specialised staff um, at secondary school particularly to be able to do that Um, at primary school we, we feel that a, a, a wide, a broad um, and balanced curriculum is the answer and um, while we do that on a daily basis we also offer um, extracurricular activities at, at Cronkberry School to ensure that those children with sp- specific talents and skills perhaps in sports for instance are given an opportunity to excel, represent the school in uh, you know, a wide range of tournaments that go on on the island and, and take part, and being... It's about inclusion, it's about including um, children in, into as much as possible.
4: I think you, you hit on something there, though. There's a difference, isn't there, in between... When you talk about specific talents of, of picking up a subject and being able to specialise in it and really, really throw yourself into that subject when you make those decisions. But I also think for a lot of people and a lot of 14-year-olds or 16-year-olds, whenever they're making those big decisions, it's also based on what you want to drop. I, for one, was awful, absolutely awful at geography. So when I made my GCSE option choices, I was so delighted to never have to go to geography again. But then, by making that decision so early on, I'm sure you miss out on some really, really vital and
5: important lessons, Jo. But... I also think it depends on the teacher that's teaching the subject too and whether there's a connection with that teacher and you think that you can continue for the next few years being taught by that specific. Because I know in my experience and also in my kids' experience, that makes a massive difference to, you know, if they've got that connection with the teacher too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's lots actually to, to think about. Rob, going back to what we were talking there, do you think that the children get enough guidance from teachers or do you think it's just left up to them too much to make those decisions and those choices for Jesus?
6: Um, no, I, th- I think uh, pupils do get a, enough guidance. I mean, the careers services, at, you know, at secondary schools are particularly high. Um, but I think it, it's it's important that the relationship side of, of teaching and learning is vital here, isn't it? And you're you saying before about um, children having preferences based on their relationship with a particular teacher. That can actually play a really big part, I think. In secondary school, in primary school, the the, the teacher has that very privileged position where they're they're actually involved in lots of different subject areas with with their class over the year. But again, the relationship is vital that the the children can, you know, warm to that member of staff. And that's quite a big ask for a primary school teacher. Um, But I think it's also very rewarding so that the teacher can see every side, every angle of a, of a child's development, um, and Chrissy,
1: I think there's there's something around trying to get um, children interest interested in particular subjects. I know there's a big drive. We yeah. have engineering companies um, who are linked to schools on the island who come in and talk about engineering, and they have a particular focus on trying to get girls interested in that, and particularly with science as well. So, I think it's about trying to garner an interest in a particular subject more
4: than necess- and you might specialize. But if you you've not got an interest in it. But if we left yeah. it to a little bit later for them to make that decision on specialising, there'd be a little bit more time to garner that interest, I suppose.
1: But I think that the thing to, to remember is obviously the system we're, we're in is the system we're in. But however, it's not insurmountable to change that. So just because you've taken one subject at GCSE, it doesn't mean to say that you couldn't go into another aspect when you take your A-levels, or indeed when you go on to university and take a degree.
5: And how can they fit this in anyway? If they decided to give the pupils a chance to make those decisions later on, how are they going to fit the curriculum in? I don't understand how what, what really the discussion has even been had for, because at 14, you've only got two years, haven't you, before you actually take your GCSE. What do you, what would you do then do? Just make it a year before? I, I'm not quite sure how they could change the age on this one.
4: I... Really, really stuck to my guns, and through making my A-level choices, kept my options really open, and was really keen. I did drama on one hand, and I did maths on the other, and it really spurred me on in my university choices as well to go to a university <clears throat> where I had to do outside courses because I don't think I was even ready at eighteen or twenty to know. I still don't think I know, and I think that's the thing. That a lot of children don't realise that we're all making it up as we go along, often too. <laughs> that we are all still kind of trying to work out what Sweet we're doing. For yourself, Kate? Are you you sure now? I kind of know <laughs> what I'm doing. I think
6: <laughs> one, one very important thing which we try and do in in both primary and secondary is invite people from the world of work into our schools. Um, not not just sort of celebrity celebrities, but but. But everybody, you know, with a, a position of responsibility. And we asked them to talk about how they actually achieved that, that role and the, the education background and everything and the training that they had to do. And I think that's a, a vital component of our curriculum as well.
4: We'd love to know what you think. You can text one double six, one double seven, or email women today at manxradio.com. We've had a couple of comments on Facebook, Joe.
5: Yeah, Fran just says the IB provides a much more full rounded education. IB? Yeah. What's that? International Baccalaureate. Thank you very much. Angela (laughs) says I laughed out
4: loud when I read that. I was utterly bamboozled by maths and science at school. I think that if I'd been forced to study them up to age 18 I'd have been a gibbering wreck. Incidentally, when I left school after my O-levels I found my own ways of understanding both subjects and ended up with a science degree. If I hadn't been able to have a break and take my A-levels as a mature student in a more relaxed and flexible environment, the Isle of Man College, I'd have continued to believe that I was incapable of understanding either subject. So do let us know what you think one double, six, one double seven.
1: Well I think it's fair to say uh, that these people are the ones that tend to come in for a bit of flack and above all else I think that to be one you have to be someone who can make a decision and stick to it. We are talking about referees today and are joined in the studio by Steph Shaw who is a level 5 referee. Steph what does that mean? Uh, county Right, okay
7: so there are different levels. So you start off at level... Start off at level nine, and then you work your way up through the system, so you, all the way to level one, which is international.
1: And so you're at level five. You you going to progress to level four, or do you just kind of stay where you are? I'm looking to this season, yes. Okay. Did you grow up watching football? I mean, how important was the
7: game to you? Oh, massively. I've grown up with football all my life. My family massively into it, and I really enjoy it. So, and who do you support? Oh, I don't know about an air uh, Liverpool. And and that was that a family? All right, all right. (laughs) Each to their own. Each to their own. Um, Is that a family thing? Is are you
1: all? No, not really.
7: I just liked Steven Gerrard when I was younger, so I stuck (laughs) to it. Really? Why not? Why (laughs) not? Indeed. Um, When then did you decide to give refereeing a go? I started refereeing when I was fourteen. I really enjoyed the game, so I became a football player, then a football coach. But it really wasn't doing much for me, so I thought. So when I was at school, advertising for referees at a local football association, and just went along. And how has
1: being a referee changed the way you watch the game?
7: Oh God, massively! Yeah, absolutely. It's um, you recognise every foul, every positional, um, every positional thing from the referees should be there, should not be there. You know, it it changes your perception of the game 100%.
5: Just going back to you saying that you played when you were younger, yeah. did you have to really prove yourself against the other boys that you were playing with maybe at school? Did you feel that you had to do that?
7: Um, I played with the lads, to be fair. I've always sort of like had more lad friends and, than girlfriends. It's just the way I've been. But um, you do, yeah, so you do want to be a little bit better than them.
5: The other girls didn't give you a hard time for doing it at no, all? No, not at all,
7: no.
1: And what about being a referee, though? Because I imagine it doesn't matter whether you're a a boy or a girl or or whatever, when it comes to taking on that position, as I said in the introduction, you are the focus of a lot of attention. And if you make a decision which people don't agree with, you're going to get quite a lot of flack for that.
7: You are. I mean, referees get flack regardless. Um, It doesn't matter if you are 50 years old, what age you are, gender, sex... We are all individuals and we're all striving for that one goal and that is to become the best official every single time we step out on that pitch and whether that's individually or as a team, it doesn't matter. Are you quite hard-skinned then, naturally? I think you have to be, you know, I think you have to be. Um, you can't take things personally. Yeah, you do get some stick for being female, but if you don't let it go over your head, it'll, it'll ruin your game and then you just want to walk back onto the pitch again. It doesn't happen all the time. It's very rare, to be to be honest. Well, you're fairly new to the island. You only moved over here from Blackpool in January. What actually brought you over here? Uh, I, I'm i in a relationship, so I moved over, um, which is probably normally the re- normal reason people move over to the Isle of Man. And I also uh, moved with work as well.
1: And how have you found it so far?
7: I really enjoy it. It's uh, it's really nice. A bit windy but
1: You um joined the Isle of Man FA. Um how important has that been in terms of settling in over here?
7: Um they've all been really welcoming. I think the Isle of Man FA, um, you know, they've all been really really good good guys to be fair. They're the same as Lancashire. You know, they're all they've all got each other's backs so, and like you say, being female does not matter one little bit to them at all. And, and just thinking about um, football being
1: so important in your family, your brother-in-law is a, is a referee as well.
7: He is, yeah. He's a football league referee, so he's he's sort of he's sort of what I'm looking up to to um, that next level. Um, he's doing really well for himself, so he is involved in, in my family very much. So it's interesting that to be honest, I couldn't think of any famous referees' names, but I did mention it to my eight-year-old son. Is it Mick
1: Jones? Is have I, have I remembered that right? Ah,
4: see the bald one. The uh, this is probably uh, a few, few years, years ago. Days. Yeah, the bald one with the you know, coward kind of Webb. No, um, the eyes. The bald oh. one with the eyes. The best referee in the world, Kalina. Yes, yes. exactly. Best referee in the world. The one I knew. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: The bald one with the eyes is possibly not tantamount to knowing him, Kate. Mm.
5: Do you get any flack during the week after a game? Even does it carry on? You know, during if you see like any players or spectators out in the street, because obviously we live in a small island.
7: I, I haven't. I've had. Uh, I've had the old people go. Oh, you're right, Ref. You know, when you're in the street, um, especially with my job you know they all uh they all tend to come in and most of my customers have i think i sent one customer off which was interesting um (laughs) but yeah it's good fun at the end of the day that it's it's a lot of banter and and that's that's all it is it's it's brilliant i do enjoy it to be fair do you think it's useful when you're moving to a new
4: place or especially somewhere like this where it is a small community that you almost already had a a a pastime, a hobby, something to get involved in and to make new
7: friends that way? Is it useful for you already knowing that would be there when you arrived? It is, because not knowing anybody on the island specifically, you know, getting involved in, in a local sport, which is massive on the island, football, um, and getting used to all, all the guys that you're refereeing we, with, then yeah. Did it's... you have to do quite a lot of research on the, the local teams and players? I did do some hit? research on it just to see, you know, just, just for myself really, but I do that before every game. I want to know what position they are, what league position they are, how how up for it they're going to be. You know, just not to have an opinion on it before the game, but it's nice to know, is it top versus second, or is it bottom versus top? You know, just just a bit of research.
5: Women Today, brought to you by Citywing.com, for your next flight
4: away. On the 31st of October 2010, a woman who was brought up here on the Isle of Man was killed by her estranged husband. Joanna Simpson married British Airways captain Robert Brown 11 years earlier, but their marriage was not a happy one, and he beat her to death with a hammer following divorce proceedings. They had two children, a son and a daughter, aged just nine and ten at the time. Joanna's body was found five days after her death in a grave in Windsor Great Park in England that Brown had dug weeks earlier. Her family have, of course, been through a traumatic and unimaginable experience, but since Joanna's death have rallied to set up a foundation in her name. More of that later, but first, I've been speaking to Joanna's mother and patron of the Joanna Simpson Foundation, Diana
8: Parks, and I asked her what kind of person Joanna was. Joanna was superb. Of course, every mother would say that about their daughter, but she was a particularly lovely, caring person, and she was brought up on the island. She went to school here and then she left the island to go to university and then she worked in England and didn't come back to work on the island. When did she get married? She married Rob in February 1999. And what sort of marriage did they have? Chris and I, Jo's father, we were incredibly disappointed at her choice of husband we felt that it would end in probably divorce, n- never imagining it could end in the way it did. But we weren't happy. But Joe was 37 at this time, and you can't really tell your daughter to not marry the person she seems to have fallen in love with. Can you tell me what happened then on Halloween of 2010? Jo had been on the island the week before with the children and they have two weeks' holiday. And then she'd gone back home, and then he had access to the children for the second week of the half-term. And he brought the children back. They ran into the family room, which is just next door to the kitchen, which is next door to the hall, where Rob attacked her with a claw hammer. In front of the children? Well, the children could hear. The children heard. And they just didn't know what to do. Can you put into words what it's like
4: to get a phone call to tell you that your daughter has
8: has died and, and how she's died? Well, in actual fact, um, the police were very strange. It wasn't easy to find out what was going on at all. My son and I, we just kept ringing. We were told by a friend of Joe's that... couldn't find her and I was frantically ringing her mobile number Um, so it wasn't until two o'clock on the first of November that we actually heard that she was missing and um, well we didn't know whether she was dead we didn't really know anything but they had found blood in the hall and the children were with her estranged husband's girlfriend and we went down the next day, James and I, on the plane and we stayed with one of my daughter's friends and the children came to us.
4: What was it like, the process of of the court case
8: and everything that went with that? It was absolutely horrendous. I've never been involved with anything like this, nothing to do with the law at all and I found it very daunting. I was told just to look at the jurors and to answer yes or no. And the barrister, the prosecuting barrister, saw me five minutes before I went into the witness box and that was all. It was horrendous. It it was the worst experience that anyone could go through. As
4: you say, Joanna had two children and you spent a lot of time with them afterwards. How did you find dealing with your own grief and their grief at
8: the same time? We talked. Um, I mean, I have photos of Jo all over the place. We talk about Mum all the time. Jo had left in her will that she wanted me to have the children should anything happen to her and her husband. So it was quite definite. She wanted me to have them. And in fact, when I said to them, I will come and live here with you so that you can continue at school, they said, no, Granny, we want to come back to the Isle of Man please let us come back to the Isle of Man. And in fact, Alex has told me he even wanted to live here before his mum died. In May 2011, Robert Brown was convicted not
4: of murder but of manslaughter with diminished responsibility and sentenced to 26 years. The family feel the court did not get to hear a true representation of what Joanna was like and that failings by the prosecuting lawyer were to blame. And the Crown Prosecution Service and their Director of Public Prosecutions has thanked the foundation for bringing the failings to their attention. So what is the foundation? Well, it doesn't provide services, but instead raises money for established charities and supports them financially. Here's Diana
8: Parks again. Well, after the perverse verdict that we received in court, we really felt that the process had failed us and it had also failed to protect the children. And I thought, this cannot be right, what has happened to us, when there was overwhelming evidence of pre-planning the murder that he got off with manslaughter. And I said to Hetty, Joe's best friend, I said, we've just got to do something. We really have to do something. And in fact, what we achieved first is with the CPS. We met Keir Starmer. We then met Alison Saunders, who took over from Keir Starmer as the DPP. And in fact, she we were her first family that she saw. And she was so moved by our story and our court experience that the CPS set up a new, I don't know if you could call it law, but a new uh, thing for prosecutors that they need to gather good character evidence of the deceased and bad character evidence of the defendant at a very early stage. Uh, because this can be called on and it shows the deceased in a positive light which of course can't be done because she's dead or the victim is dead and the defendant can say exactly what he likes. And that's something that you you really felt happened. And we actually did that and um, Alison Saunders has paid tribute to the Joanna Simpson Foundation for making them aware that the defendant in a partial defence, can just say anything he likes about the victim because they're not there to say, well, this isn't as it was. And in fact, I didn't recognise the person that the defendant was talking about as my daughter. So that has happened already. And what are the plans for the future when it comes to the right. foundation? Well, we've given £15,000, which is our first grant, to the Anna Freud Centre which um, was set up by Anna Freud, daughter of Sigmund Freud. She was a psychoanalyst and worked a lot with children. And we liked her approach to how children are cared for. And David Tricky, who is the clinical child psychologist, he is actually coming to talk at the lunch on Saturday. And we are pioneering a new approach to carers and children. And this is working with children and carers together within a month of the killing. And in America, they've done a lot of work with Yale University, and this has proved to be incredibly successful. If there's a killing in America, the police go, and a clinician goes as well to be able to speak to the children. And talking to the carer and children to help them to understand what is happening what, because their stability is completely blown out of the window. They're, one of the parents is dead and the other's probably been carted off to jail. So it's a new intervention to the UK, and this particular work has managed to help 50% of children not get post-traumatic stress, wow. which is quite a big thing. Because in, in the UK... 130,000 children are in danger of being in families where there is domestic abuse. And every year, 200 children are bereaved through domestic violence. It is the most shocking statistic. And if you can get to these children and the carers early, this can be of tremendous help. Because children tend to blame themselves for what might have happened. And... (laughs) anything that can be done to help these children and also the carers, because if you don't help the carers, you're not really helping the children. And that's part of it, I suppose, to treat the the new unit as a whole. It's very helpful to get there within a month. Sadly, this wasn't in place, obviously, when it happened to me. And I found I didn't need any counselling because I used to tell anybody, unless you've actually experienced this, you cannot possibly, even though you've been trained to tell me how I should feel, unless you've experienced it yourself, you absolutely can't. I found, I don't know where, some strength came from within, and I hope I did the right things with the children, but somehow, five years on, they seem to be doing well at school and and happy, and I do hope I did do the right thing. Whoever knows in the future, because sadly this is an ongoing things through their life.
4: Diana, it seems like you've really, really thrown yourself into this. And as you say, you you really are taking the foundation seriously and you want to make incredible changes. Yes. How important has it been for you for something good
8: to come out of what happened to your daughter. It isn't only important for me, but it's important for the children. And the children have embraced this amazingly because I've said to them, I mean, I'm 76, and I've said to them, look, when I'm dead and gone, you're going to have to be carrying this on. And because of the experience you've had, you will be an enormous asset. And they've embraced this amazingly. I'm so pleased in memory of their mum. Diana Parks, mother of Joanna Simpson and patron of the Joanna
4: Simpson Foundation.
1: But we're going to turn our attention now to one of the biggest online stories of this week because a UK lawyer has been accused of unacceptable and misogynistic behaviour for sending a barrister a message via LinkedIn complimenting her on a stunning picture. Now LinkedIn, in case you're not aware, is a professional networking site and I also think it's important to tell you that the solicitor Andrew Charter did not know Charlotte Proudman beforehand. He has now apologised though after she posted their private conversation online. She says she did it to discourage workplace sex but has inevitably come in for a lot of criticism online. So we want to know this afternoon, is it a huge misunderstanding of an innocent compliment or a woman
4: highlighting the need to pay attention to everyday sexism, Kate? I don't think it is an innocent compliment when it is preceded by the phrase. I appreciate that this is probably horrendously politically incorrect. If you have to say that, you know what you are saying is politically incorrect and therefore someone may take offense at what you're about to say and so no I don't think it's an innocent compliment when you already know it's likely to offend. Oh come on some people are just looking for an excuse to be offended. I don't know if if you get a message on a I think I think this is the important thing it was a a networking site a professional networking site if you get a message on that sort of site that is about your physical appearance I think that that can be incredibly offensive. But
1: if she doesn't want to be judged on her looks, then don't use a profile picture of
4: your face um, and put it out there. What? So when you meet people now in real life, they won't be able to recognise you. If you know what someone looks like, you're much more likely to go up to them and say, oh, we've been chatting on LinkedIn. It's lovely to actually put a, you know, just, I was going to say put a face on it, but you've already <laughs> done that. But But to meet them in reality and to actually... Be able to build on that professional relationship, which is what you were trying to do on LinkedIn in the first place. But you know what? He wasn't hitting on her. It was just a compliment. Was it though? Was it? Joe's no. about to go insane.
5: <laughs> Come on, you two. Let me speak here. Goodness me. I'm with you, Beth. Um, I'm I not letting you speak now, Joe. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, at the end of the day, seriously, you know what? Just take a compliment just take a compliment it's not a problem that somebody has actually made a compliment towards you I do hear what Kate is saying that if you obviously um, are saying that this might be horrendously politically incorrect to say it maybe he shouldn't have said that um, just actually give her the compliment and don't make a, a thing about it but yeah I have to say you know what everyone enjoys a compliment but I think it's also a question of relationships this is not someone he knew already
4: it's not the same as um, us walking into work and be going Beth oh you look lovely today because we know each other you didn't do that today by the way sorry Just saying. um but it isn't the same thing because we have that relationship we know we're on the same page whereas this is a, a two people in the law profession one much more senior playing a compliment to someone he does
5: not know i can is, is that, he married Yes, yeah, the he guy is. he is married so maybe you know slightly inappropriate the fact that he's married that he is obviously making a compliment towards another woman that isn't so so politically correct perhaps but you know what I don't think that she should be making such a scene about it I think she's gone way over the top about it
1: okay let's find out what our guests this afternoon think Marion I thoughts? think it's more
3: patronizing than offensive actually I, I don't find it massively I mean I'd love to get a compliment like that from uh, from where I am but um no I, I I get the bit that Kate's saying about um it's a professional site and she's you Know on there so that she can um, put her profile out there and to get comments like that, you know, it does slightly sort of um, diminish what it is she does, which is um, practice the law. But I think it's more patronizing than offensive. She
1: could have, he could have been talking about the quality of the picture, perhaps. He did claim that, but again, is mm. it, do you have to precede that with politically incorrect? I think there's worse things that could be said,
2: Paul. What if it was reversed? If it was a woman talking about a guy looking, you know. I don't think it would make anywhere near the same impression as this story. It's, it is still a sexist sort of thing. It's, it's, we're living in this political correct world and I don't believe it would fly the other
0: way around what well, it was a man doing yeah. to another, another man that might be different mightn't it that would be <laughs> <a bad laughs> well, that would yeah. be difficult you know okay we're thinking <laughs> in a different way here <laughs> well, i just i just think you know we're thinking about because that would be taken in a, in, a, in a potentially you know offensively or it might be actually a huge compliment who knows yeah, but whether it's us? a
3: compliment or not the fact <laughs> is it's a complete stranger making really personal remarks i think that's what's
5: wrong with it But I also think that she's created an awful lot more of attention about it by creating this huge uproar about it too. So in actual fact, she could have just accepted it and gone quietly under the surface, discussed it with her friends, her colleagues at work, but it's gone global now and that's creating a lot more attention.
2: She'll be on NBC this morning, she'll be on all the news channels, she'll be on the chat show circuit, she'll do all right. It's the way you're
3: wired, You you either rise to something like that, you say, oh. I don't like it, but I'll just bury it.
4: She has made the point, however, that this is not the first comment on LinkedIn that she has had of this nature. Change your picture then. Sorry. What? So you're not allowed to be attractive and professional? Uh, Well, but that's the point that you're saying, isn't it? She's not allowed to be complimented on being attractive. No, I'm saying that she should be judged on her professional abilities not her ability to look nice in a photograph
1: thanks as always to our amazing guests and as ever it's never too late for you to get involved head over to facebook find the women today facebook page and you can comment there or you can follow us at mr women today on twitter and you can listen again to the full programs on manxradio.com or join us every weekday live from just after two o'clock